Although, I've seen some scripts I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome back to another episode of the In the Mouth of Darkness Chatcast. I'm your host, Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork, and joining me today is Lisa Gullickson. What's up, White Dork? Hello, how's it going? I'm doing great. This is our second episode this week. We're bringing you a twofer. I want to say welcome to hopefully our new listeners who joined us earlier in the week with the Scott Atkins episode. That's right. That guy has some serious followers, and I cannot blame them. The guy is dreamy. He's got an accent that's hot. Um, he's amazingly talented, really super engaged with his fan base, I think. Yeah, very much so. He's a retweet master. He's mm-hmm. really helped ItMod out this week. So I want to say welcome to all our new listeners and all those Scott Adkins fans out there. Avengement hit theaters and VOD today. Yes. So get on that. It's a mm-hmm. great movie. As you heard on the last week's episode, I am a massive fan of it. I'm really excited for Lisa to finally check that movie out. I am dying to see it. Yeah. But today we have another really rad guest. We're talking to documentarian Eric Nelson about his new film, The Cold Blue, which is a really cool and unique documentary about World War II. Yes, it follows the Mighty Eighth Air Force, uh, which included the Memphis Bell, but it does so by restoring William Wyler's original footage from his Memphis Bell documentary to tell the larger story of the Mighty Eighth, and it brings in, uh, you know, the the survivors of those bombing runs to narrate the footage that Wyler and his cinematographers captured. Yeah, the way he conducted his interviews is he would show that footage to these octogenarians. 90-year-olds, 90-year-olds. I don't know the word for Like, not <laughs> enough people make it to past octogenarians to get a word, I guess. Right, right. Nonagenarians. But he shows them this footage, and then they speak about it, and the emotions of that time are still so raw All of these years later. Yeah. So the film is having a Fathom events tonight, Thursday, the 23rd, but it will be coming to HBO in the near future. So, yes. Check it out. Check it out. We really, really enjoyed it. And Eric Nelson, I mean, we're already fans of his. Uh, Lisa and I adore his documentary, uh, Dreams with Sharp Teeth, which about is about Harlan Ellison. About Harlan Ellison. And, uh, you know, he works as a producer on a bunch of the Herzog documentaries like Grizzly Man. So he's done it all within this world. Um, I don't know. Is there anything else we need to say before we jump right into the conversation with Eric? I would say if you haven't seen the documentary, it's not like we're talking real spoilers. No, no, no. But I think that the conversation will be enhanced if you seek out the documentary first. So, But they're not going to be able to do that until it goes on HBO, Lisa. Oh, what? Never mind. Never mind. Listen to this podcast. <laughs> and when the documentary comes out later in the year... Listen to it again. That's right. We could use, Frankly, we could use the numbers. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's jump into the conversation with Eric, and we'll meet you back on the other side. 
Brooke, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? Doing wonderful. Really, really appreciate you coming on and chatting with Lisa and myself. Uh, we watched the film the other night. We were uh, very moved by it. So thank you. Good. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm always curious how people who aren't military history geeks respond to the film. So it's gratifying when civilians watch, uh, <laughs> educated civilians watch. So well, both Lisa and I come from military families. Neither of, I, neither of us served, but uh, our, both of our fathers were uh, military, Navy and Marines. So, uh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. What I found so moving about your movie is not only is it a a tribute to the mighty eighth, but it is also a tribute to William Wyler and his cameramen who got up in those planes, risked their lives. And, you know, in the case of Tannenbaum lost his life and you're paying tribute to the footage that they collected. So I just wanted to talk about your experience of paying tribute to the men, but also having to pay tribute to the footage. Well, entire film it sort of pays it forward with what those guys experienced in World War II and the idea was to take footage that Weiler risked his life to film and Harold Tannenbaum lost his life to film and propel it forward into a new century and a new audience. So, you know, I had a profound sense of responsibility not to fuck it up mm. because you're uh, in, I'm working with material that William Wyler, you know, William Wyler <laughs> right. uh, film. And William Wyler had a very definite idea of how to put it together, and he did it brilliantly in the original Memphis Bell. But on the other hand, the Memphis Bell had deteriorated dramatically since 1943. There were scratches and imperfections in the footage due to a processing lab accident in every version of the Memphis Bell. Uh, and the Memphis Bell was made for an audience in 1943 who wanted some explanation as to why they uh, they were getting telegrams on a daily basis reporting family members who'd been killed. So it was a different time and a different universe. So to to reboot the Weiler footage into a brand new film uh, was a challenge and a responsibility. And I was very gratified to make the acquaintance and then enjoy a very close relationship and continuing relationship with Catherine Weiler, uh, who's really keeper of the family flame, William's oldest daughter, who was four square in favor of this project. And we restored the original Memphis Bell to bring it up to the, the technical chops of the cold blue by re-editing from scratch, re replacing 500 edits, re mm. literally re-cutting re the film from scratch with all of its raw footage, which mm. I'm not sure, you guys may know better than I do, I'm not sure a, a film restoration has ever done that before. I mean, like, I, I, I certainly understand the desire to take this task on, and as a fan, I'm so glad that somebody did, and you know, I, I get to reap the benefits of your work and everybody's work that contributed to this movie. But at the start of this project, I cannot imagine how daunting a task it would be to collect this footage, restore this footage, and then assemble it into a new work of art. I mean, what is even step one? Well, actually, it, it, 
it wasn't. It, it, this is where I should say yes. You're right. It was. <laughs> it enslaved me. But the last feature I did, Gray State, uh, was infinitely more draining. Mm. And this project to me was a. Uh, 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 it was a dessert after the ordeal of making a Gray State, uh, which also used uh, archive footage, but a very different film. So. Uh, from the beginning, I, I looked forward to doing this project, which I originally made. I won't use the phrase vanity project, but I really just made it for myself and for Paul Allen, who was my uh, partner in this in Vulcan Productions, because we really had a passion for uh, World War II history and World War II aviation in particular. So there, there was 15 hours of footage the Weiler shot, so there wasn't that much, 15 hours sounds like a lot, but it's really not, and a lot of it wasn't usable, and there were a lot of duplicates, you know, so there wasn't that much footage to contend with. I kind of instantly had the idea of how to frame the film, which was to use the footage woven together with mod, with guys in there today talking about the experiences of flying, not where they went and what they did on a particular mission, but more the sensory uh, experiences. So I went into the project knowing I, my, my one-liner was, I want to make Koina Squatsy with B-17s. <laughs> I wanted to make an impressionistic art film that was forensically accurate, but not a not a documentary that told you who, what, when, where, but told you more what it felt like, what was the experience like, and sort of knock a lot of the traditional uh, traditional things out from under the project, you know, where you cut from, you have a narrator, and then you see a thing, and then you do a sound bite. You know, uh, I'm not Werner Herzog, and I've worked with Werner in a few films, so if I can't have Werner narrate or write a project, then I won't have anyone write it. Mm. And that's in some ways dictated how I do it. So a lot of the, quote, major creative decisions were made before I even started, mm. and the project fell together incredibly quickly, and I didn't restore the 15 hours of footage. I restored the 72 minutes of footage that we used. So I finished the cut of the film, I did the transfers, then I finished the film and locked it, and then I gave it to three people. I gave the footage to uh, a gentleman by the name of Ernest Savage, who I'd worked with as a colorist and someone who really knew how to massage and make footage look good, a uh, editor who I've worked with forever, Paul Marengo, who just got a newfangled gizmo that could remove scratches and remove dust for the visual aspect. I handed, and the same film went to David Hughes, the sound designer who I'd worked with, who was finishing up the Black Panther as the sound designer when I gave him the footage. Mm -hmm. And he took the project on, sort of like, okay, I said, we have to create, put all the sound in because the footage was shot silent and let's do it in surround sound and let's figure out how to do that. And perhaps the equally important, I gave it to Richard Thompson, the composer, musician, who I worked with on Grizzly Man, and I've worked with in a number of my films, and I said, go get him. What do you hear in this film? Score it. And he came up with the music, and all three people worked independently of each other, and we put it all together four or five months later, literally added the final picture to the final score, to the final sound effects, and we were done. So, it's... It, in my experience, and again, I'm monologuing here, so excuse me, but <laughs> no, please. If, you have, if you have the right idea going into the project and, you would, and, and, the, and it breaks properly, it can be very easy. 
and in this, this thing, the idea was the right idea. And what I find interesting is at the same time I'm making the cold blue, Peter Jackson is making They Shall Not Grow Old, right. which is so similar in so many ways. Restored footage, disembodied voices of veterans, impressionistic film about the experiences of war, and Apollo 11's being made. Right, yeah. Uh, stock footage, impressionistic surround sound soundtrack, score that sort of serves the material but a whole new way. All three films are being made simultaneously. So clearly, you know, clearly there was this idea in the air at the time. And then the films, you know, the Cold Blue premiered last June and Jackson came, premiered in October and Apollo 11 came out in January. So they all came out at approximately, you know, pretty much the same time and were made at the same time. And they're very similar in many ways, but they all exist in their own creative universe. Yeah, and, you know, we're fans of all three of of these uh, approaches. But what's interesting about the Cold Blue is you have an opportunity to speak to some of the survivors of the footage you have. And my experience with my grandfather, who was a a, a D-Day survivor, was when I was a kid, he didn't want to talk about it. When I was a teenager, he sort of wanted to talk about it. But by the time he hit his 90s, that's all he wanted to talk about, and he wanted to document it. When you approached these guys, were they uh, excited to have you in their house to document it? Were they excited to see this footage restored for the first time? Was there trepidation? What was that experience? Well, there was a, there was a protocol. They obviously were willing to do the interview, but they didn't quite know what I would be talking about. So I, I had a very rigorous protocol. Uh, my the producer, Peter Hankoff, and I, the two of us were the one-man sound crew interviewing team and shooters. So we drove cross-country. We started in Arizona and worked our way across the country because you have to go where these guys are. They don't come to you. So the first part of every interview, and they're also the stamina on these guys is low, and I did not want to film their interviews because I felt the presence of cameras would throw them and it would be too intrusive. So another decision I made was we're not going to film the interviews. But what I did do was before every interview, I set up my trusty uh, 17-inch MacBook Pro and I screened them 10 minutes of footage, kind of orchestrated footage of the restored footage that so they kind of get them in the, 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 get them in the zone, if you will. Then I told every one of them, I'm not really interested. I'm interested, but I don't need to dwell on your personal experiences. I want to know what it was like. I really want to know, tell me what it was like to be up there and tell me things, you know, tell me your experiences. And because I had a rough idea of, I knew what I had. I knew that we had beautiful footage of contrails and I knew that we had beautiful footage of it being cold and we had the the ground crew and we had certain things that Weiler had shot. I made a point of, I just asked them very specific questions for no more than an hour. None of the interviews were more than an hour because that's really all they could do. And then I would move in, turn off the cameras, move in, find their good ear, sit a foot away from them or as close as possible and have a conversation with them. Mm-hmm. And because they were sort of had been connected to the time through seeing a bit of the footage, without exception, they all kind of went, they understood, they went with it. And I kept drilling in on the questions of sensory things. So they'd probably not been asked questions like that before. 
and I do know my World War II history, so I was able to know not what, what not to ask them, and I didn't have to ask who, what, where, when questions. Mm. I knew I knew what I, I I knew what I wanted, and I got it very surgically across the nine interviews. You know, watching in fact, one day we we shot three of the nine interviews in one day. Uh, for the film, and, and we we shot three interviews in one day, and the opening sequence of Bud singing the song and the credit roll in wow. one day. It's very gratifying to hear how you went into this project with this clarity of purpose, because it it comes through through the film so crisply, and particularly with these interviews you really do feel that you're going to places that have not been gone to before. And there are some really true raw moments that come through, through the interviews. And I was just wondering during the, this three year process of putting this film together, were there any beautiful discoveries that you made that took you to a place you didn't expect? Well, there are things that I didn't, I didn't, think about that made sense once they said there were three things that sort of struck me one was that the most dangerous part of any mission to almost all the guys the quote scariest part was not being shot at over germany but was literally taking off and forming up to fly across the channel that the idea they'd be taking off in pea soup fog mm. with planes filled with fuel and bombs and then limp into air and then circle for two hours before they even made the four-hour flight to Berlin and back. And that was considered by them the scariest part of any mission. That was something I hadn't appreciated. The second thing was how cold it was. I mean, you take it for granted, but this metaphor that I mentioned in the film, these guys, in 1943 at least, were in heavy bundled up in, in, in the cold temperatures equal to the summit of Mount Everest with the same air that at the summit of Mount Everest flying 10-hour missions and trying to shoot down German aircraft attacking them. That is just mind-blowing to me. And the final thing was that of the guys I spoke with, I think four of them, three or four of them were machine gunners, that not one of them, not one of them in all of their missions ever not only never shot down a German plane, never hit a German plane firing back. The, the machine guns on, on, on the missions were a placebo. Hmm. And last week, just last week, uh, I had the privilege of talking to a guy who flew 52 missions out of Italy and B-17s was the top turret gunner. And he, I asked him the same question, did you ever hit anything? And he said, no, not once. And I might add that gentleman I spoke with was Norman Lear. Oh, wow. That's wild. <laughs> Did you ever feel yourself challenged by the ethics of sending these young men into the air with placebo guns and knowing that the journey is every part as dangerous or as dangerous as the battle. Did that, did that ever cha challenge you? Well, what challenged me, I, you know, I, um, I, Challenge me to depict it or challenge, you know, I obviously didn't fly the mission. Uh, well, I mean, to to express that side of what they were doing, this idea that they were being sent up into the air with one expectation and the reality was beyond their imagination. And, and the depiction well, of... Well, the, the, yeah. the good news is 
you know, I've never been a fan of Western Union Telegram. Remember that archaic reference or, <laughs> or documentaries that tell you what to think? Mm-hmm. I'm much more, you know, um, which is an interesting contrast to some of the Herzog films I've done where they're all about Werner telling you what to think and how he thinks, which is why they're so wonderful. I, I sort of, I, I'm the opposite. I like to just put the, put it out there and let the audience find what they want to find. So I guess I would ask you the question, as, as someone who watched the film, did that point come across in the film? You know, did, 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 you, did you get, did that, did that residue come out at the end about, if not the futility of the mission, the, 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 the dangers and just sort of the impressionistic horror these guys experienced as a day job? To me, I just felt this lack of fairness, this idea of being put on these missions and being told you're going to do a certain number of missions. And the more they understand what they're actually doing, the more missions they then have to do. To me, it just seems, I felt very moved by that. You empathized with their fear. I did, very much. And just seeing these guys, they're young men, they're teenagers, or barely not teenagers. Well, good. And, you know, and why it's important to have them in their 90s talk about it is you get a sense of this happened 75 years ago for these guys. And it's so, it's still vivid. And that moment where Al Villagrin cracks up when he's talking about his friend who was killed on the day his son was born, you know, this was very real. And that was a really, that started, happened at the start of the interview with him. And that was one of those, let's shut down and let's get our, let's, his wife went over and comforted him. And there was another, but Hedeke was with him and they sort of had a moment and we sort of cleared the emotional residue and then went on to do the interview. So when you're in the presence of guys who are haunted by the experience after 75 years, you realize how indelible it was for them. And also, of course, how young they were. I mean, mm. let's put it this way, 21-year-old, 19-year-old kids today, it's hard to imagine anyone in that generation doing what these guys did or feeling it was a compulsion to do it. Though, of course, they would in the right circumstances. What those circumstances are, hard to imagine today, but there you go. You end the documentary asking, I think it's you, you ask Bud, yes, uh, maybe a couple folks, but why is it important for them to record their stories? And you let them answer for you. But uh, I'd like to give you the opportunity also uh, to just say, like, why it's important for you to make this film for people of 2019 because, to see. you know, the experience of World War II was this great fracture. The world fractured during those five years. And it's become a cliche in many ways uh, and a sort of easy to forget, easy to dismiss it, easy to fictionalize event. And I want people in, in the most direct, hardwired way to connect with the experience and the men who actually had the experience. At the very end, these guys aren't going to be around in a year or two. You know, they, you know the, 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 these are the last surviving links between that that experience, the great fracture of World War II and today. Mm. So we need to preserve that that in its purest form. And secondarily, 
to preserve the work that William Wyler and his technicians and, and the late Harold Tannenbaum risked their lives to capture. William Wyler went out of his way to go, you know, insisted not only that he did everything he could to be sent to the front the same year that Mrs. Miniver wins an Oscar and he wins an Oscar for Best Director, as the, uh, the awards are being given out in Hollywood, he's in the air flying these near suicidal missions. He didn't have to be there. Hmm. And the fact that a great filmmaker, an artist like William Wyler, risked his life to bring in this footage, to me makes it mandatory that we preserve it and, as I said at the start of this discussion, pay it forward to a new generation for another 75 years. Thank you for doing the work. I know Lisa and I were both very moved by your film, and we're looking forward to watching it on the big screen when Fathom Events puts it out. I think it's going to be spectacular on the large screen. It really is. We thought uh, it's designed for that. You know, it's really, you know, it's meant to be in there. In the uh, Fathom Event, there's a prologue, a short prologue, which is unique to the Fathom Event, that we just uncovered in the last couple months, uh, which is the air war from the Nazi perspective, a a newsreel we discovered in the Berlin Film Archives and restored that puts you in the the seat, the cockpit of a German fighter shooting down a B-17, which is utterly amazing and harrowing. And and then there's a making of uh, film at the end that kind of gets in, that documents a screening we did at the 8th Air Force reunion last October in Dayton, Ohio, we screened the cold blue at the 8th Air Force reunion to mm. a, a room of 100 uh, 8th Air Force wow. uh, families and a, a few survivors. So that was an extremely emotional thing. And they, I think in some ways the roadshow version, which Fathom is showing next week, is is, is the one to see. And it's great that communal experience of seeing it in the dark is, is worth is worth the run. Well, Lisa and I are going to be there. And before I let you go, uh, we just wanted to also thank you for your documentary Dreams with Sharp Teeth. We're both big Harlan Ellison fans, and with his passing recently, we rewatched it, and um, that's also a very special film, so thank you for that. Well, talk about a harrowing experience, <laughs> uh, dealing with Harlan Ellison. <laughs> you know, I started filming, uh, you know, I started filming Dreams and my first interview with him was in 1981. Ironically, during the same period I was interviewing him, I also interviewed Harlan's recommendation, Norman Lear. Talk about uh, strange coincidences. <laughs> and then making dreams. Yeah, I, you re- you wrote a really nice eulogy for him, I think. I seem to remember. I did, yeah, wow, yes, I did. I was reading a lot of the pieces that came out, and yours was, it was a really good one. Oh. Um, you know, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of really dumb ones and uh, a, a few good ones, and you were one of the good ones. And oh. So I, I, it's good you, you know. Well, thank you for that. I was know. not expecting that. I really appreciate that. Well, Eric... Uh, thanks again for coming on, talking with us. Um, you know, we're really going to encourage our listeners to seek the cold blue out. And uh, I just I just really loved the movie. And I know Lisa did, too. I did. Oh, thank you very much. And yeah, I'm glad. At least we know we sold two tickets. So <laughs> for sure. For sure. Thank you, Eric. You have a great day. Take care. Bye bye. And there you have it. Um, yeah, I was not prepared for that last bit where he, uh, had, uh, you know, complimented me about my Harlan Ellison 
essay. I do think it was essential that you put that little moment in the actual podcast. I nearly burst out into tears (laughs) at his compliment. It was really, really sweet. Yeah, so, you know, not only should you seek out uh, the cold blue, but you should seek out Dreams with Sharp Teeth. And if you want to throw Brad Gullickson a little more love, check out his Harlan Ellison Was Watching piece on Diabolique magazine. You can find it on their website. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, it's a hell of an interesting story, a hell of an interesting movie. Uh, it's essential that we capture these stories of these veterans now Uh, You know, as Eric says, there's not many of them left out there and we need to understand their story. It's a part of American history and world history that we think we understand through our knowledge of pop culture and films like The Big Red One or Saving Private Ryan or Memphis Bell or whatever, but you have to engage with the people who are really there to truly understand it. And at the end of the day, I don't know if we'll ever truly understand the terror and the fear that they went through. I do think that Eric does a great job, though, of not trying to influence the message of the film too much. I tried to get him to do it. I and know. He, and you did too. I did too. I really let my like hippie flag fly going <laughs> like, well, you know, they're sending all of these guys into the air that are essentially cannon fodder and they're giving them, you know, placebo guns. Like, that doesn't seem fair to me. And he's like, yeah, it's just whatever you think is, yeah. Yeah, but I know, Lisa, you know, your grandfather, uh, Grandpa Joe, who's still with us, who just had his 100th birthday. Yes, he did. He, you know, he was in the Navy. Uh, no, he was in the Army. Army. Whew. My grandfather, Gully Gullickson, he was in the Navy. He was at D-Day. He was on the USS Quarry, which sank off the coast of Utah Beach. He spent several hours in the ocean, mm-hmm. lost a lot of friends, including my grandmother's first husband, Pete Peterson. Uh, and your grandfather was uh, in the Pacific? No, he was in India. Yeah. Yeah. So as he reached the end of his life, it became a compulsion to tell his tale of the war. And it was very important to him that the youngsters understood the sacrifice that they went through, that their friends gave their lives for the comfort that we experience today. Because they believed that American life, global life as they knew it, was going to come to an end. Yeah, yeah. The last time I was at my grandfather's house for his 100th birthday, we brought out the albums and we flipped through pictures of him in his uniform uh, and pictures he took in Karachi. It's it's amazing. I mean, it really was cathartic for him. Sure. To share these stories with us, stories I had never heard. Yeah, and Eric Nelson does the same thing with his film, and he does it paying tribute to the Mighty Eighth, but also to William Wyler, his cinematographers, and especially Harold Tannenbaum, who lost his life getting that footage. So that wraps it up for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to Eric Nelson for taking the time to chat with us. We really, really do appreciate it. Guys, go see The Cold Blue. Find it. You're not going to be disappointed. Uh, Lisa. Yes. Where can our listeners find you online? I'm at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Follow our other dorks, Darren Smith at the Disco Dork on Twitter, Brian Young at the Turtle Dork. 
Billy Das at WB Das on Twitter and Instagram. I am Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork at Mouth Dork on all social medias. And come back next week. We're going to have two more episodes. Uh, on Tuesday, we're going to drop one where we talk to filmmakers Christian Stella and Jeremy Gardner. They made a film that we adore called The Battery, and they are returning to our show to talk about their new film, Something Else, which just premiered at Tribeca. And then at the end of the week on Thursday, we're going to drop a conversation that we had with another documentarian. Lisa and I had an amazing surreal chat. My mind is still blown. (laughs) With Ira Stephen Bear, the showrunner of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, our favorite Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And he has a new documentary out called What We Leave Behind, looking back on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And because it's Iris Stephen Bear, it's mostly negative. Mostly looking back, it's... He's a little grumpy. He's a little grumpy. He's still coming to terms with Star Trek fandom as a whole and the response that he received from the the fans, quote unquote, that wrote to him about Deep Space Nine. He's a, a glass half empty kind of guy. Yeah, it's a, I, I mean, I love the conversation. Yeah, I love great. the conversation. And uh, it's yeah, it's 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 a good time, especially if you're a Trekkie like us. So tune in next week for both of those. And yeah, uh, until next time, guys, take care. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? Oh no! (laughs) When you have the Scott Atkins scream, you don't just waste it on one episode. You bring it back for another stinger, Lisa. You got me. You like, you really got me. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe, maybe I'm going to close every episode with the Scott Atkins scream now. You don't know. Don't do that. Don't do that? Don't do that. Okay, Okay, guys, take care.